0: Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale.
1: Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jodie Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Lisa Ferentz, and we are going to be talking about healing from trauma, disordered eating and other self-destructive behaviours. Lisa is a recognised expert in the strengths-based, depathologised treatment of trauma and has been in private practice for over 36 years. She presents workshops and keynote addresses nationally and internationally, and is a clinical consultant to practitioners in the United States, Canada, the UK and Ireland. She has been an adjunct faculty member at several universities and is the founder of the Friends Institute now in its 13th year of providing continuing education to mental health professionals. In 2009, she was voted the Social Worker of the Year by the Maryland Society for Clinical Social Work. Lisa is the author of three books, has hosted a weekly radio show, writes blogs and articles for websites on self-harm and self-care, teaches on many webinars and frequently contributes to psychologytoday.com. Hi, Lisa, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Jodi. It
0: is a pleasure to be with you.
1: So would you share with our audience a little bit about yourself and what led you to working with trauma, disordered eating, and other self-destructive behaviors? And if you have any kind of personal history there that you'd like to share, that would be good too. Sure.
0: I think I'm a bit of an anomaly, Jodi, because Mm -hmm. I'm kind of in the minority of folks who are trauma-informed, and I am not a trauma survivor. So I come at this work actually from a different place. I just lucked out and I had the benefit of growing up in an extraordinarily loving and safe family Mm. with lots of good, secure attachment. And that gave me a very positive sense of self and self-worth and also gave me the ability to engage in positive self-talk. I thought everybody had a good sense of self-worth and self-esteem and then discovered that I, again, I'm a little strange and a bit of an anomaly. And so I I think ultimately I came into this work about 38 years ago now, because I really wanted to pay it forward. I understand what it feels like to have that sense of groundedness and inner peace and confidence, and to be able to talk to yourself in positive ways, which I think is sort of the driver of of all of our subsequent thoughts, feelings, and, and behavioral choices. And so I wanted to be able to pay it forward. And And help people to, frankly, achieve what I was fortunate and blessed enough to just sort of naturally experience at the hand of of my parents. So when I began to work with folks, I saw the hurt and the suffering and the pain. I didn't really start out be, wanting to be an expert in self-destructive behavior. I always <laughs> disclose that. I sort of jokingly say that I am an expert against my will only because it's not anything I thought about that I wanted to be involved with. But even as a grad student, Jody, in my field placements, you know, mm. in graduate school of social work, my supervisor would often give me cases that were either somebody who was the adult child of an alcoholic or somebody who had grown up with sexual abuse or physical abuse or emotional abuse. And what I began to see was this incredibly powerful connection and confluence between having that history of trauma, abuse, neglect, or not having gotten good secure attachment. And then all of these subsequent self-destructive behaviors Mm. that I, right at the start of my career, was very determined to not pathologize, even though in grad school, the message that I was getting was figure out what's wrong with your clients. And I was always really interested in what's right about them and what happened to them and how are they still standing? Because I was listening, I was bearing witness to stories, to narratives of childhood experiences that in my wildest dreams, I had no idea that parents could treat their children in that way. So that was very, very eye-opening and it made me realize, number one, how lucky and blessed I was. But also I saw that when you don't come from that loving, secure relational template, you're not given healthy ways to do affect regulation, to self-soothe. You don't even have some of the fundamental ways to communicate your narrative because you're often not allowed to be open and honest in your family of origin if it's a dysfunctional or a controlling or an abusive family. So I just got very curious about this connection between a prior history of trauma and self destructive behavior, which for me, there's a lot that comes under that rubric. So when I say self destructive behavior, I'm not just talking about acts of self mutilation, but any addictive behavior, substance mm-hmm. abuse, certainly the eating disordered behaviors, abusive relationships. For me, all of that kind of comes under the category of self-destructive and also dissociative. You know, there's a dissociative element, right, to these behaviors. And now in this day and age, clients have even more creative ways that they can dissociate, you know, going on the internet for 12 hours or porn addiction or video gaming and uh, online gambling. So there's even more things that a client can potentially do in an attempt to self-soothe, to be numb. And I think also to communicate their pain narrative. This just became fascinating to me, you know, this connection that I saw very, very early on in my career.
1: Yeah, so you train at your institute. You train therapists, but you've also yes. written books aimed at clients. So, do you see clients anymore, or you mostly I work do. with thera- you? Do
0: oh, great. I oh, well, do. I do. Know. I still work. It usually, averages out anywhere between fifteen and twenty-three clients a week.
1: Oh, that's good yeah. to hear. Because when I was looking at your website, I thought, what a travesty if you weren't seeing clients. <laughs> because you know, it's good to train therapists too. But even as you were talking, and I was thinking about my history, is very much in a trauma history and how nice it must be to naturally know what to say to people because for for people with trauma who have recovered they've had to work really hard as you know at um at being kind to themselves and saying um, compassionate things to themselves so it's actually nice to hear that you didn't have to go through that i guess
0: Well, you're right, but here's what I always say in response. And I do, I will always see clients, partly because I think it's very important. It gives me ongoing credibility, frankly, Mm, mm. as a trainer and educator, as a consultant, as a teacher. I think you have to be in the trenches. You know, you can't stop doing that work. I love being able to give examples of, you know, I can give you an example of what happened with a client two days ago. And I think that's important because it, it keeps it... It brings it to life, and it keeps it relevant. and And I love doing it. It to me, it's yeah. a great, great privilege and blessing, frankly, to be able to be able to still maintain my private practice. But what I do say to the folks that I train, in response to your statement, mm-hmm. is. Yes, on the one hand, it is a little bit easier for me. I don't get triggered by my clients' narratives because there's not a lot of counter-transferential reaction because sure. it doesn't, you know, it doesn't reflect back on my personal history. However, I can also tell you because I, I in addition to everything else, I still provide a lot of consultation to really seasoned and terrific clinicians, many of whom are trauma survivors themselves. Mm. And I think that when you do have that as a part of your narrative you have a depth of knowing and understanding that's probably cellular that that I don't.
1: Yeah. Can I just ask you to, because this uh, podcast is aimed at at women who are still suffering, you use the term counter-transference. Would you mind just saying just briefly, just for our listeners who, I mean, that's quite a therapy sort of term. Would you just explain to them what that actually means?
0: Yes, and I will actually work hard to not put any more jargon. <laughs> into the conversation. I know <laughs> it's know, hard. I, often I do webinars that are that are designed for therapists, exactly. so I, thank, I appreciate you letting me know that we have you know we also have folks who are in yeah. different different place. So countertransference means when something happens in a therapy session, either something that a client has said or a particular emotion that's in the room, it means that the therapist is getting triggered, the therapist is reacting. So rather than being able to stay kind of fully present and grounded so that you can continue to be a resource of support and stability and calmness for your client, when you experience countertransference, it means that you as the therapist are in some way becoming kind of emotionally overwhelmed or destabilized. And that, of course, is going to impact the therapist's Mm -hmm. ability to be that really necessary resource of stabilization for, for the client. So it's sort of like the therapist is looking in the mirror and they're hearing things and they're experiencing things that are hitting very close to home.
1: Yep. You just mentioned consultation too and that is one of the reasons why as therapists we go to supervision and consultation to work
0: through anything like that that gets stirred up for us, I guess, is the best way. Absolutely, yes. I think that that's such an ethical thing to do when you have, hopefully as a therapist, if you have enough self-awareness and you understand that there may be a certain type of client, there might be a particular issue that the client brings. Again, that's reminiscent of your own experience and it's so important to get consultation because it provides objectivity you know, Absolutely. Um, I can stand outside of what's happening in that in that therapeutic relationship, and and kind of help the therapist to stay objective as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's an essential ingredient, I think, in in being effective as a clinician.
1: Yeah, and just for our listeners in Australia, all therapists here are sort of mandated to monthly supervision for the duration of their careers. So, for Australian listeners, you're all sort of safe at some level. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah.
0: That's actually wonderful, and I will tell you that. In the United States, that is not a, no, a, requirement or a prerequisite at all, and boy, it should be. It
1: should <laughs> it be. Should be. Yeah. yeah, the UK, New Zealand, Australia, and many other uh, European countries, it's all to be registered with our, um, like PAC for it is in Australia. You have to have at least actually once a month. Obviously, the more client hours you have, then you have to actually up your supervision, so it's pretty strict.
0: Good to yeah. hear. That's a good thing. I wish I could be referring to Australian therapists. That would be a really <laughs> good thing. <laughs> so let's look
1: at trauma survivors, I guess, and let's focus on uh, them today. And. So people who are still very much trapped in self-destructive behaviours. So my experience with women who come to therapy with me, and that's predominantly women with trauma and eating issues, they Mm -hmm. sometimes when they arrive don't even realise that they have suffered trauma. They mostly just kind of have this deep sense of unworthiness that they don't feel good enough. They think there's something wrong with them. Could you please help our audience understand
0: what trauma is from your perspective? Sure. I think. Any event that we either experience firsthand where we're on the receiving end of physical, psychological, emotional, sexual, verbal maltreatment or abuse... But it's not just experiencing it firsthand. I think it's equally important to include in our definition that you can be traumatized when you witness someone else mm. whom you care about. And the witnessing, by the way, can be something that you see. For example, a child who's growing up in a family with domestic violence or intimate partner violence and sees one parent you know, physically harming another parent or mm. verbally demeaning another parent. We also can witness... Auditorily, by hearing. And I have many clients, I'm sure you do as well, Jody, mm. who share the experience of hiding in their closet out of fear, but hearing, you know, hearing the violence, hearing the fighting, hearing the maltreatment. So I think what you said is, is right on and very important because when you've not experienced something directly, it's even easier to come to the conclusion that you couldn't possibly have been traumatized by it. Mm. And So I always emphasize that you don't have to experience it firsthand. Again, it can be something that you witness. And the something is either objectively or subjectively threatening to either our Psychological or our emotional well being, or to our physical sense of safety. Typically, when we experience something that for us is traumatizing, there is a very powerful element of loss. And the loss can be played out tragically in many different arenas in many different ways. So, there can be a loss of trust, a loss of protection, a loss of safety, a loss of privacy, a loss of your boundaries, a loss of a sense of self a loss of faith, and that's certainly not an all-inclusive list. But -hmm. I think there really is this very powerful ingredient of loss, which also then evokes a lot of grief. But it's important to add that people can have a very wide range of emotional reactions and responses to an event that they either uh, subjectively or objectively experienced as threatening to their well-being. So there's that piece. Mm -hmm. And then even more importantly... I have come to believe, Jody, that it's actually the meaning that we attach yeah. to those experiences. Um, and what I mean by that, if something happens and we, the way we think about it and talk about it, the narrative that we hold about it, if we personalize it, like it was my fault. Yes. Or I should have done something to prevent it or to stop it. If we add that kind of meaning-making to what's happened, it's far more likely that we're going to be traumatized by it. If, conversely, a person goes through something that is threatening and painful and frightening, but they don't personalize it, if they recognize that there was nothing they could have done to prevent it, that it wasn't their fault, if they actually can focus on the fact that they survived it, then that goes a very long way towards mitigating the adverse uh, impact and consequences of that traumatic
2: event. Mm.
1: And I was going to ask what causes trauma, but you've kind of weaved that in there. But it's interesting, you know, I've been in private practice for 20 years. I've probably only had a handful of clients who haven't personalized it so yeah. I guess this is instead of asking what causes trauma because you've kind of already mentioned that I mean it's obviously from the environment that we're in what makes some people personalize it and others not that might be a tricky question yes no no that's
0: a great question yeah. and what I want to just say in terms of what causes it although I agree mm-hmm. I think we're touching on it I think it's important to add it's often intergenerational Yep. And so, you know, families pass down abusive or neglectful parenting behaviors. If no one is ever challenging them, then unfortunately those kinds of behaviors get normalized and they get replicated and reenacted. When a child is forced to deal alone with painful family dynamics without protection, without support, it's the aloneness of the experience that really dramatically increases the likelihood that event is going to be traumatizing for them. But the personalization—it's a great question, mm-hmm. and I have to say you're ahead of me because you said you have like four or five clients who've not personal. I've never yet had a client who didn't come into the process, you know. And obviously this can operate on a continuum to varying degrees, but I've never had a client who didn't personalize it. Mm. And I think there are some very specific reasons why almost, and we're talking, I am talking now about abuse and neglect that starts in childhood. So for a child who's experiencing maltreatment, uh, neglect, abuse of any kind, part of why they have to personalize it is because it is absolutely untenable for a young Mm. child to hold the reality and the realization that their parent is harming them yep. and that that means there's something wrong with their parent. That's an untenable thing to believe and to think because what do you do if you're six years old and you have the realization that daddy hurts me because daddy is bad. You know, daddy hurts me because there's something very wrong with daddy. Mommy doesn't protect me because there's something wrong with mommy. Where does that leave a child? It's, well, it's very, it's it's very scary, isn't it? Yeah, of course, because you can't decide at six years old, well, okay, I figured out that my parents have problems, so I'm going to go somewhere else. You know, I'm going to find, I'm going to find another family. <laughs> yep. And so I think that every child to varying degrees, but every child who's in that situation has to, in a sense, take ownership of what's happening. So let me show you how that switches rather than saying daddy hurts me because daddy's bad. A child says daddy hurts me because I'm bad. Yeah. Mommy doesn't protect me because I'm not worthy of protection. And the brilliant thing, and I really do mean that word, the brilliant thing about a child sort of taking ownership, taking over the control is that it then frees up the parent-child relationship so the child can stay attached Mm. to an abusive caretaker. Mm. So it's necessary. I'm going to go on record as saying that it's necessary yes. for a child to take some degree of ownership so that they can maintain attachment and connection to their uh, caretaker who's abusing them. The other piece of that puzzle, Jody, is what Piaget, who mm-hmm. was a child psychiatrist and psychologist, used to had conceptualized as something called magical thinking. Yep. And magical thinking means until you're about eight or nine years old, you believe that all the stuff that's happening around you in your world is connected to you. It's like the small child who walks on the sidewalk and, you know, has a superstition and doesn't Mm -hmm. step on the cracks because they think something bad's going to happen. So, okay. So now that's the second puzzle piece, right? We have the first piece, which is I have to own this so I can stay attached to my parents The second piece is I have magical thinking. I think everything that's happening is happening because of me anyway. Mm -hmm. And the third piece that equals, that creates that self blame is so many abusers and perpetrators say to their children, I am hurting you because you deserve this. Uh, This is your fault, right? If you were a, a better kid, a smarter kid, a quieter kid, a prettier kid, you know, you fill in the blank. I wouldn't have to hurt you. I wouldn't have to hit you. Mommy wouldn't be so angry. So My goodness, the confluence of those things, I think it's kind of an inevitability. Mm. that anybody who's grown up, you know, especially somebody where there's a, a, really a chronicity to their abuse its happening over and over and over again, those three pieces come together so powerfully. And to me, it makes sense that that initial way of holding their experience is through that lens of, of self-blame, which yeah. then, of course, evokes a tremendous amount of shame. And yeah. shame is a good word for us to bring up because it's going to connect us to self-destructive behaviors. Yeah. And
1: something you said, the child feels bad. What was I thinking with that? The child feels bad. Yes. And it's more tolerable to think that they are bad than to believe the parent is. And for me too, it's, it's kind of easier for the child to say I'm bad rather than feeling bad because it's so excruciatingly painful. And when we're talking about abuse and neglect, I mean, it can even be things like, I'm yelling at you because you were naughty. We're not actually just talking about severe neglect and severe abuse. I think there's, over the years, there can be statements like that where the child is not seen and heard and they're, they're repetitive. So, because for a lot of clients, they come in and they say, my mum didn't beat me.
0: You're absolutely right. And, you know, you know, one of the classic lines that many, many parents say, even if they don't have nefarious intentions, but a classic line is you make me so angry. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of gives a young child a sense of power that they don't actually possess. Mm. Um, You know, you're making me hit you. In that moment, the parent is abdicating all of their responsibility, and, and they're putting it on the child, which is, again, it just kind of solidifies that child's sense that what's happening is, in fact, their fault, yep. and they're doing. When it's not. Yes, it's never. When a parent, if a parent chooses to hit a child in response to a child's behavior, that is always 100% the parent's choice. Mm. Nobody mm. makes us yell, scream, hit, punch, kick no yeah. there's no such thing. I don't believe in that. The person who is inflicting the violence, who's inflicting the demeaning words, that they own that. That's their choice. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So I found you on Psychotherapy Networker mm-hmm. in an article that you wrote called It's Not About the Food. And I referenced you in my master thesis. And oh, I just thank I, you. I, I just <laughs> love that article you talked about having to change the way that you work with people with eating issues. And on your website, you write early in my career, my attempts to work with self-destructive behaviors backfired repeatedly. This forced me to discover a new, more effective approach for working with this population. So I guess what was it that was going wrong and you know, Mm -hmm. what were you doing that wasn't working and what was, and is your more effective approach? Sure. I
0: actually think it's really important to be transparent about that because, mm-hmm. you know, nobody's perfect. And, of um, course. <laughs> in, in the mid 80s, you know, when I was really kind of in my private practice and got my training in the, in the early 80s in, in the School of Social Work in Maryland, mm. the approach to treating self destructive behaviors. Frankly, the approach to almost everything was very pathologizing, meaning yep. what's, figure out what's wrong with the person sitting across from you. And specifically, the earliest training that I got in terms of how to work with self-destructive behaviors, it always connected the behaviors to the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, which yep. I felt was almost a death sentence in the mental health community. If you ask therapists, and I do this all the time, whenever I train, I have the great privilege pre-COVID of traveling mm-hmm. around the world. Now I, I told you I do it for my kitchen table. Mm-hmm. But you know, for a very, very long time until just about six months ago, I had the privilege of, of traveling the world. And I and I always ask clinicians when I'm teaching them and educating them, you know, if you got a referral for a case and the diagnosis, the client's diagnosis was borderline personality disorder, what would be your reaction? Again, we're going to use that word countertransference, right? What would be the yeah. reaction for the therapist? And It's amazing how there's such universality to the answer to that question. And the answer is, this is going to be an incredibly difficult client, probably not going to get that much better, going to be very high maintenance, there's going to be a lot of push pull in the relationship. They're going to want to fire me 10 times. I don't know if I have the emotional bandwidth to deal with somebody who's borderline. In other words, nothing positive, nothing hopeful, mm. nothing optimistic, really negative, frankly. And I think that's a huge problem in our field in general. Oh, it that still is, still is today, right. I think. Yes, many, many agencies and mental health organizations and even private practitioners continue to make that very powerful connection between any self-destructive behavior and this diagnosis of borderline, which I will tell you in my 36 years of private practice, I have never once given anybody that diagnosis and I never will because it really does put a glass ceiling on the extent to which the therapist believes that that person can heal, get better. I was taught back in the day that when dealing with self-destructive behaviors, it was my job to extinguish that behavior as soon as possible, Mm -hmm. not work with it, not unpack it, decode it, understand if there's perhaps communication attached to it, just get rid of the behavior that really truly was the mindset at least in the United States I'm aware that you know we're speaking in different countries and so no,
1: no I think medical I you know we have a Medicare system here where it's very medical model based and yeah. so you would typically get that I think psychotherapists over here and in the UK where we kind of do more of a you know, more of a gestalt, psychosynthesis, somatic. So it tends to be less about diagnosis. But certainly if you train in psychology in Australia, you would be going with the medical model view that you're talking about.
0: So that was my initial kind of introduction to working with self-destructive behaviors is basically just get rid of them. Mm. And the other part of that was standard safety contracts. This is something else I was alluding oh, yeah. to when I said that back then I did it wrong. Uh, standard a, a standard safety contract is something that a therapist makes a client sign very early on in treatment, basically saying, I promise between now and next <laughs> week, I won't engage in my behavior. And often the therapist holds the relationship Mm -hmm. And the ongoing therapeutic process contingent upon whether or not the client honors the contract. This always struck me as problematic, even though I was very green and not very experienced. It just intuitively felt wrong because it felt to me... Like an inadvertent reenactment of victim perpetrator dynamic, which is the perpetrator says to the victim, You have to do what I want you to do. You have to be compliant. You have to be acquiescent. And if you do what I want you to do, then I'll be in relationship with you. And do what I want you to do can be anything from being silent, not crying in the household to allowing me to sexually molest you and anything in between. Mm -hmm. And so this whole notion of a standard safety contract where I'm basically forcing the client to sign this agreement that says, I get it, in order to be in therapy with you, I can't, and then you fill in the blank, I can't cut myself, I can't engage in my eating disorder, I, I can't use substances. And it didn't work. And that was the biggest problem of all, is that, yeah, you can kind of cajole and force people to begrudgingly sign these contracts. And then I noticed that the client would come back the next week. And not only had they engaged in the behavior, but they did it like three times more than they normally would have, just to show me (laughs) that I was going to lose that power struggle. Yeah. That was a real turning point for me, you know, in my practice, like this is not working. And I I do hold to the idea that if something is not working, don't do it more and harder. Do something different. So that was that really got me thinking this whole safety contract thing. I, I just I don't think it's working in terms of specifically working with folks who do doing eating disorder behavior. One of the things that I was taught to do, again, very early in my career was to force clients to keep these very detailed food journals. Mm, my God, and it yep. struck me that that's incredibly shaming. I don't have an eating disorder. I've never had an eating disorder. But the truth is, if I had to write down every single thing that I've eaten, you know, over the last week, I wouldn't necessarily want you to read that it's interesting because
1: I did an eating disorder training a few years ago and we had to keep a food journal and I went to lunch and I actually went to the new Jamie Oliver restaurant and I had a glass of wine and I had some pasta and I had salad and then I had to fill in this bloody food journal and I was sitting next to a girl who was a fitness professional and she's got this little salad written on hers and here's my pasta and wine and
0: and I lied
1: I lied on the sheet yes and that that's Jody. That's exactly what. And I think I've been recovered is. for twenty
0: something years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that it's absolutely a setup for clients to know. Like. and that's shame-inducing as well. It is. It is. You know, whether they've written everything out and they're they're embarrassed about, you know, that one night they had M and M's for dinner, or they're ashamed because they know that they've not been totally forthcoming. Mm. So again, food journals, I just threw them out the window. I don't have a problem with nutritionists want to work with clients, you know, around those, those kinds of issues. But as a psychotherapist, I don't want food journals to be a part of the relationship. I never ever weigh a client. I don't ask them about their weight. Now, obviously, let's just say this as an aside, I'm in outpatient solo private mm. practice, which yeah. means you can't be medically compromised to work with me. Right? That's right. So so that's important to state. I'm not talking now about clients who are medically compromised. That's a different scenario. It is. So I threw safety contracts out the window. I absolutely stopped having people do food journals, which, boy, did they sigh an intense sigh of relief once that Mm -hmm. was off the table. And the other thing that I had, that I was not taught to do, and I know that you're going to understand this and relate to this, because I think it's part of why you invited me to do this podcast. Nothing about their eating disorder behavior was contextual, meaning yeah. it was not connected to family of origin. It was certainly not connected to trauma. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. get the client to goal weight, talk about calories, yeah. talk about, you know, intake of food, talk about portion size and get them to goal weight and then get them out the door. And it felt to me, this is the, the best way that I can say this. It felt like I was being asked to put a bandaid mm-hmm. on something that required surgery. Oh
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: And that's exactly why I asked you. (laughs) (laughs) I thought so.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. So then what did you start
0: to do differently? Here's the first thing I I started to do differently. I stopped thinking I was an expert in this. And I realized that I was the student and my client was the teacher. And rather than operating from that sort of anxiety-induced place of, I got to get you to stop doing this behavior, I started taking a very different tack Mm -hmm. where I would say to my clients, tell me about what you get from the behavior. Tell me about why it feels important to keep doing the behavior. Tell me what your fears are about letting go of the behavior. And oh boy, did that open my eyes to a whole other understanding and perspective you know, uh, about this, what what we would call the secondary gain. Mm. Because the way human beings are wired, we don't do something, we certainly don't continue doing something, unless we get something from it. And I think in the mental health field in the early 80s, we were not being trained to ask that question. We just wanted you to stop doing it. But we needed to first ask, help me to understand why you do do it. Yeah. and what you get from it and again what your concerns and your fears are about giving it up now at the same time i had the great great pleasure and you'll tell me if if you know this person if he's well known in australia and if, if his treatment model is well known but i had the great privilege of befriending richard schwartz dick schwartz who created Oh, uh, yep, yep yep yeah oh good so dick is the founder the creator of the of internal family systems yep. ifs And actually, here you go. It was at Psychotherapy Networker. So I'm always grateful to Rich Simon for all these wonderful Mm. tentacles of connection that seem to keep happening through through Psychotherapy Networker Conference in Washington, D.C. And so I met Dick in the mid 80s. He was just beginning to conceptualize his model of internal family systems. And interestingly enough, his very first application with that model was, in fact, eating disordered clients.
2: Uh And so,
0: yeah. So the whole notion of parts work. It just totally spoke to me. Mm -hmm. This idea that there's a part of you that starves, there's a part of you that binges and purges. But what that implies is that there's another part of you that doesn't or doesn't want to. So being able to kind of not look at the eating disorder behavior as the all-encompassing way to define the client. And I'm gonna show you with language, even though it's so simple, the difference. The difference in the early, early 80s, when we would talk about a client and say she's anorexic versus yep. the way in the later 80s and beyond, I would talk about a client saying she engages in anorexic behavior. Yep. Right? Yep. One, the first, she is anorexic, she is bulimic. It is an all-consuming identity. Yeah. And there's so as you well know, there's so much more to any client than the coping strategy that they're using. Now, I just said coping strategy. That was another pretty profound shift because the pathologizing way of looking at this is that it's a mental illness. Right. And that, you know, it's bad and it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I completely shifted my perspective on that and began to look at all of these behaviors, cutting, addictive behaviors, eating disorder behaviors. These are the inevitable byproducts of trauma or a pain narrative. And they are actually creative coping strategies. And until these folks get into therapy, give themselves the gift, really, of believing they deserve the support of therapy, We can't blame them for turning to things like an eating disorder behavior because there's nothing else in their repertoire. If you've grown up in a family where you were not given the nurturance, the love, the positive modeling that you need to be able to internalize self-compassion, self-care, positive self-talk, you don't have that stuff. Mm -hmm. You don't know how to do that stuff yet. And so when you're overwhelmed, when you're stressed and you need ways to cope and you need ways to self soothe and frankly be a little bit numb, you're going to turn to self-destructive behavior because you don't yet have any other tools in your toolbox. And once I really understood that about my client's, I understood why they were they were so tenaciously defending those mm-hmm. behaviors and so terrified, frankly, about letting them go. And I realized it is so unfair whether you're a therapist or a family member, a friend, a loved one, a doctor, it is unfair to expect somebody to give up these behaviors until and unless you give them other healthier ways oh, absolutely. to communicate, to cope, to self-soothe, to navigate stress.
1: Otherwise, the client just feels even more shame because yes. you know when you can't give something up, if there's nothing else
0: to go to, that's just not going to work. That's right. It's so not going to work. And what happens is even if a client, let's say in an attempt to please their therapist, mm-hmm. decides to no longer uh, purge, they're going to do something different they're going to start cutting. They're going to start, they're going to pick up and use alcohol. In other words, they're going to jump from one self-destructive behavior to another self-destructive behavior because that's really all they have in their repertoire of coping.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I call it um, symptom switching. Yeah. So what do you believe these survival strategies are trying to communicate? So someone, I guess, with, with, with disordered eating, what are they trying to communicate?
0: Well, first, I want to commend you for asking the question because it, it tells me that you really, really genuinely understand there is communicative value in mm. these behaviors. And honestly, Jody, there are still tons of therapists in the United States who don't get that at all. Oh, absolutely. It's so frustrating. You know? <laughs> yeah. So kudos to you that you're asking the Thank right you. question. <laughs> it really, it means a lot. And what I want to say is I actually think that because there are different manifestations of eating disordered thinking and behaving, they communicate different things. Yeah, exactly. I think all of the, be- and I'll be very I'm willing to be very specific with you, but all of the behaviors, I think, ultimately are communicating pain yep. and oftentimes prior, un- unprocessed, unresolved trauma. I think that they are a creative attempt to try to articulate and process and metabolize that that pain. So anorexic behavior, for example, somebody who's engaging in anorexic behavior, for me, the the communicative value, the the metaphor, if you will, is that I very strongly equate that with a history of loss, a lack of nurturance. And a feeling of invisibility. Mm-hmm. If you kind of literally look at what a client is doing when they're restricting their caloric intake, they're making themselves smaller and smaller in the world. So I think that that is a very creative way to communicate uh, long standing feelings of invisibility. They're depriving themselves of nurturance. And I think, again, that's a reenactment of past experiences where they were not adequately nurtured where they were not adequately emotionally nourished. Sometimes literally physically, you know, malnourished in in some way. And that communication, I think it's important to add this. Sometimes it's conscious for the client, but mostly it's not. And it's really not until I invite the client to begin to become curious about what might you be communicating through that behavior. I think that's a question that folks who've been in and out of eating disorder treatment programs often do not get asked. Yeah. So to ask that question, let's be curious about what you might be communicating by restricting your caloric intake, by making yourself smaller, by not giving yourself adequate nurturance and nourishment. Binging is a little bit different. Although again, I think the roots are still, you know, there's still a pain or, or a trauma narrative behind yeah. it. But I see binging as a metaphor for feeling this unconscious need to literally make themselves bigger in the world, mm. to kind of create a protective shield around their bodies. And I'm going to say this anecdotally in my practice, many of the folks that I've worked with over the years who engage in binging behavior do have that history of sexual abuse, yeah. where there, there's been that violation of the body. And so unconsciously, the way that they can feel that people will be less likely to invade their bodies is to build this sort of protective shield. I don't know if you get the television program, My 600 Hundred Pound Life. Do you get that in Australia? Oh, I
1: have. It's it's on at some weird hour. So I've seen it, but I haven't actually watched it yet.
0: So my husband's a physician, and Mm. actually he's done a lot of work around the issue of obesity, Mm. you know, because of the medical complications associated with binging and obesity. I'm talking about people who are morbidly obese. So we do watch that show. And every single episode, and I mean bar none, every single episode, the person who um, now of course these are extreme examples, these are people who literally weigh five, six, and seven hundred pounds, but mm. it 's so poignant for me because in every episode, there is the disclosure of a childhood history of sexual yeah. abuse yeah i 'm not saying one hundred percent cause and effect that that would be an unethical statement to make, but I would say to therapists who are listening, if you are working with clients who have been binging for years and, and have brought themselves to a place of really being dramatically overweight, aside from the medical complications that it does create, which is also a statement about not engaging in self-care, be open to the possibility that there may be information there about needing to kind of put that shield around the body. If you think about what binging is, yeah. Yeah. it's forcing something into the body that you don't really want there. Yeah you know as a metaphor and for purging a lot of my clients are able to in time kind of decode the communication of that it's often about this internal feeling of being dirty or damaged mm. or broken mm. and then wanting to get rid of something inside of themselves and it's not that's why the article was called it's not about the food because it's not so much that they want to get rid of the ice cream it's much deeper than that right it's that core feeling of shame or or quote badness or self-blame, and I think that's what they're attempting to try to get rid of. Yeah, they don't want there.
1: As you say, that you know, when my history is bulimia, so you typically binge on inverted commas bad foods, uh, yeah. which evoke shame, and so you're actually yeah binging on the bad and then vomiting the bad out again, that's the shame it. out again. So it's that's it. really self-destructive. Yeah. So. The topic of childhood trauma can be extremely triggering for many in the field of disordered eating. And I mean, both therapists and clients and families. So I've had women message me on Instagram after I've posted a trauma and eating disorder post. And one lady said, no one in treatment. And I think this person said they'd been in three treatments, lots of treatment. <laughs> yeah. No one in treatment for binge eating and bulimia had ever mentioned early childhood trauma. I've also received emails from blogs that I've written. So from a parent group of well-known treatment programs saying family systems theories have been debunked, eating disorders are a genetic disease. When the Netflix movie To the Bone was released, there was a swathe of negative reaction because of the focus on the childhood emotional neglect and again, inverted commas, dysfunctional family system. And at the last national eating disorder conference that I went to in Sydney, There was not a mention of trauma. It was very much food and symptom-focused, exactly like we've been talking about already today, and very much in alignment with acronym-based therapies or the social sort of cultural lens. And I've got to say, I was sitting at the conference and I was eating my lunch and I had this image of wanting to stab myself in the head with my fork because it was so painful that still... All these years later, I mean, I've been recovered for 25 years. There was a whole national conference with not one trauma presentation. So why is this field so reluctant to go near trauma?
0: First of all, I want to say I believe everything you're telling me, although I find it shocking, Mm. and I really feel for you because I understand how invalidating that must have felt. Awful. Yeah. And then again how invalidating it, it actually winds up feeling for so many of our clients. Exactly. Well it's funny because we've we've used the word counter transference several times and, and I'm gonna like kind of bring it back into the conversation again. I think that Because so many folks who go into the mental health field are themselves trauma survivors. I think there can be this unconscious reluctance to let open that door with a client Mm -hmm. because it might mean having to have your own stuff reactivated and rekindled. And so I think there's a kind of avoidance that not certainly not all, but that some therapists do engage in. Because rather than making clinical decisions based on what would be my client's best interest to help him or her to heal, therapists sometimes sort of take control of the agenda of the session. Mm -hmm. And the agenda is based on what makes the therapist feel the least threatened and the most comfortable. It's completely unethical, but I'm going to tell you, I think it's something that still happens. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that when you do connect the dots and you realize that there is a deeper story here, there's a deeper narrative here. It means that the trauma, the therapy is going to be more than 10 visits. And certainly still in the United States, you'll tell me how it is where you are, but in the United States, there is still all of these years later, pressure that therapists experience at the hand of insurance companies to do therapy as quickly as possible. Yeah. And You know, going into trauma and doing it correctly, meaning pacing the work Mm. really well, making sure your client is well resourced before you start to actually bring up the trauma retrieval stuff, Mm. takes time. I do therapy, and I don't know how you or your clients, your listeners might react to this, but... I've worked with some clients for 15 years. I've worked with some clients for 20 years.
1: Look, my first, I was in therapy before I trained as a therapist, but I was in therapy for about 12 years in total and weekly to three times a week therapy. I went in when I was still very much in my eating disorder. So that took, you know, a lot of therapy. And typically I work with people anywhere at least three years but three to wherever and you're right in Australia we have and I think it's the same with the NHS in the UK there's we get Medicare sessions which are partly provided for and mm-hmm. you get I think it gets anywhere between three and ten sessions and eating disorders a couple of years ago now get 40 sessions but when I was speaking to my supervisor she said yeah but is it more of the same of what they're already getting and I said yeah of course it's like it's mm-hmm. CBT and that's about it really yeah. And what we know is that that's just not going that's to not work.
0: The that's not the answer. And it's interesting because in the United States, you know, CBT has, co- which stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Oh, for thank you, Yeah. Cognitive behavioral therapy, which has always kind of been touted as, you know, being the most effective and the most evidence-based, blah, blah, blah. It tends to be very short-term in nature. There is no real connection to the past or to family Mm -hmm. of origin. It's very centered on just change the thoughts, change the behavior in the now. And fortunately there was enough of a revolt that, you know, it's just not, again, it's the band-aid, right? We're Mm -hmm. not, you're not letting me do the surgery. You're just telling me to put a band-aid on it. So, a few years back, there was something called trauma-informed CBT mm-hmm. that now gives a, the therapists a whopping 16 visits, but it's totally, my <laughs> no problem with it. It's completely formulaic, yeah. meaning... You do this in session one. You talk about this in session three. And then by session five, you have to be working on this. And, by set, oh, and I think it's so disrespectful uh, of the uniqueness of every client's healing journey mm. um, and their process and what they need to be safe. And the time, let's also say this, that because trauma so powerfully impacts a person's trust, people don't come into therapy and instantly start trusting your therapist. You exactly. should be able to expect them to. I, you know, I said to you, I work with people 15 years, 20 years, I work with profoundly traumatized men and women, people who actually needed to use what used to be called multiple personality disorder is now called Uh disorder. people who really had to split off and fragment their experiences because they were being horrifically abused in every conceivable way Mm. for the first 17 years of their lives. So it's going to take them three years to just trust me in oh, any way. I,
1: was, I was going to say, like, even, you know, when you start said start to trust, I thought it takes at least a year for, for most people, at least, yes. you know. Yes. Um, yes.
0: Yes. In order for, you know, all of these conferences and, and all of these organizations to get more honest and to say, wait a second. if mm. this is not just let's extinguish the behavior. See, we're back in the early 80s again mm. when we have that attitude, right? Which is which is so disheartening. To be more honest and to say, there's something else happening here. This is a symptom. This is not the core issue. Yep. You know, and, and I don't even by the way, I don't even use the word symptom with my clients. For me, it's the inevitable creative Coping strategies, yeah. the inevitable byproducts of something else that happened. You don't come into these behaviors if you've grown up in this safe, loving, secure family. This idea that just because there are skinny models on TV, so now I'm going to develop, you know, full-blown uh, anorexic behavior—I've never believed that to be the oh, case.
1: That is not. That is not the in my 20 years of experience plus my own eating history. Yeah. That that is, is one tiny little bit that adds to it but it is no way that focusing on the culture which I think a lot of therapists have now moved into that is not the cause for me Uh, it's exactly as we're talking about so yeah
0: it's not, but you know, it means insurance companies have to lighten up and they have to realize, Oh, wait a minute. This could take so, a few years. You know, yeah. We, yeah. we, we, can't, we cannot keep pressuring therapists to do this in 10 visits. It's just, you know, what's going to happen. Cause I bet you've seen this in your practice, in your career, it just creates a revolving door. So uh, people, do exactly right. They get them to go away, they get discharged. And then guess what happens in the first year? Two thirds relapse. Yeah. Now, we have to look at that statistic. That's the statistic, that two-thirds of people who do eating disorder behavior relapse in the first year. And So pro- we have to start asking why, what yeah. are we missing?
1: And the problem with that is that the, the client then feels like they're treatment resistant, that yes. they have failed. They're, they're with yes. a lot of shame. Why can't I do this? And, and actually the first thing I say to people is this, this is not your fault. It's yeah. You've been let down by uh, a faulty system. That's it. You know, That's so so the other, th- other part of that that I wanted to ask about too is do you have any advice for parents who might be listening and who might feel triggered by, uh, I guess, a, a trauma perspective?
0: Yeah. I think it's important to, again, reiterate this is – the trauma itself is so often intergenerational. And, again, when certain behaviours for the parents who are listening – Just for if you can, if it's safe to think for a moment about your own childhood experiences, Mm -hmm. you know, when that stuff gets normalized, it does make sense that you're going to take those parenting behaviors, those attitudes, and you're going to kind of pass them on to the next generation. My belief about that is it's never your fault that you experienced your own pain or trauma in childhood. And it is always your responsibility to find the courage to break that generational cycle. By allowing for an open, honest discussion about some of the parenting messages and behaviors that got normalized for you and to be able to take a half a step back with support, because I absolutely believe that Mm -hmm. parents deserve support for this as well, to step back with support and to recognize that some of the stuff that you were taught was dysfunctional, was toxic, did not serve your own children well. And my thing is, it's never too late to break that cycle. And that's a very powerful thing that you can then model for your child. So I don't think it's about blame. I know uh, people get hung up on that. I think Mm -hmm. when you put trauma in a family of origin context, it's not about blaming. It's about stating facts and making sense out of the pain and the struggles that your child is now experiencing. Yeah.
1: And I've got to say, 20 years of being a therapist with eating disorders, I have never had one client who did not have a trauma history. Yeah. So
0: and how about this, Jody? Because I've actually in my years of doing working with, with folks who do these behaviors, where there's a kid with an eating disorder behavior, there's a parent with an eating yeah, disorder behavior. Yeah. yeah right? It yeah. might not be the same one. I've worked with tons of teenagers who were doing restrictive eating, whose mothers were morbidly obese you know, and vice versa. But I, I really think that there, again, there's this sort of insidious and subtle modeling and normalizing that, that takes hold. Look, where do we learn about food? We learn about food at our kitchen tables.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We are taught by our parents, you either must finish everything on your plate or you don't have to finish everything on your plate. You're taught by a parent that you have to keep eating even if you feel full. Mm-hmm. You're taught by a parent that there's no such thing as saying, I, I don't like the taste of that food. All that stuff, all those behaviors are actually shaped at the kitchen table. So to say that it's not connected to to family.
1: So, uh, Well, I'm going to give you a a bit of an objection there to answer because some people listening are going to say, well, the the reason that happens is because of genetics. The parent is doing it and then the child is doing it because of genetics. What would you say about that? I would say that? that you're
0: leaving out the very powerful dynamic of modeling and learned behavior. Yep you know, uh, observation. It's not just about genetics. I think that the power is in the modeling. It's in the yeah. normalizing in, in the behavior that, that, the, that the parent is engaging in. The mother who stands in front of the mirror, in front of her daughter, and bemoans the fact that she's three pounds overweight, yeah. that's a learned message that that teenage daughter is getting from Absolutely. mom. And mom can change that behavior. If we're just going to, te- you know, say this is about genetics, I think it's a little bit of a cop-out because then it means, well, okay, nothing we can do, you know, it's my DNA. But if we talk about modeling and learned behavior, it creates the opportunity to behave differently and to yeah. provide your children with a different model. And and so it's, again, it's not about blaming the parents, it's actually about empowering the parent. There's choice in this. And how
1: depressing. If it's genetic, then you know, I mean, what does that say about recovery and healing? And I think there is a very sort of deeply pervasive myth that people can't recover and that this is a lifelong illness, uh, regardless of whether we're talking about addiction or
0: um, eating issues. And that's That's just not true. That's right. And so again, that saying it's strictly genetic is doing a terrible disservice to to a client
2: because
0: you're disempowering them. And you're saying what you just said, that, you know, oh, well, it's, it's sort of a hopeless situation. It's an exercise in futility to do therapy or, you know, to consciously make different choices. When in fact, I, both of us, I am sure you have. I have as well. I've had the great privilege of watching many people completely let go Absolutely. of their behaviors. I mean, it's such a powerful and beautiful thing when that happens. And it's because of choices that the client has made. And that's in their control. We don't want to take all their control away from them.
1: Absolutely. So this kind of leads us into healing, I guess. So we've looked at the underlying causes and the and the behaviours. How might someone begin to heal from your perspective?
0: Yeah, and I've written about this in a couple of my books. So there's a lot of resourcing there in terms of. I talked earlier about not doing a standard safety contract. I created something very different called Caress that gives people, when they get the impulse to engage in a destructive behavior, it doesn't say you can't. It says before you engage in that behavior, here's other things you can do that will give you an opportunity to communicate your pain effectively, that will enable you to kind of short circuit the negative thoughts and feelings and help you to soothe in healthier ways. So caress is something I created almost 20 years ago now and I I continue to be very humbled by the amazing feedback I get from both clients and therapists about its efficacy so that's something that I I often turn to and use I think that the therapeutic relationship itself, Mm -hmm. there's so much healing and repair that happens there because it gives the client the opportunity to often get that experience of secure attachment that they may not have felt in their their family hearts. When we create that Really safe, totally non judgmental space for our clients. It gives them the opportunity to go deeper, to begin to not stay so focused on the food, yeah. but to instead begin to look at some of those deeper painful experiences. I think clients need new ways again to communicate and, and to set limits and boundaries so they can feel safer in the world. I give my clients tons of resources around how to feel better. I spend a tremendous amount of time in therapy talking about self compassion. How I actually think there's nothing more powerful than mm-hmm. the way we talk to ourselves about ourselves. And certainly with eating disorder behavior, there can be that element of, of body dysmorphia, meaning, you know, looking in the mirror and 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 saying terrible things to yourself about, you know, untrue things about what your body looks like. And so being able to shift into a much more compassionate and tender and objective and accurate narrative about who you are and what you look like, that's a major part of the work that I do, positive self-talk. Uh, Journaling, I think, is hugely helpful to begin to connect to some of those deeper memories and and experiences that folks have. I'm a very big believer in using art therapeutically and sand tray and guiding imagery work and breath work. And the great news is, is I think there's many different treatment models out there. CBT aside, there's many different models or well, I'm not going to say aside, I'll say in addition, because we are reframing negative self-talk into more accurate, positive self-talk. So that is cognitive, but working with the body, of course, it's just hugely important, whether we're doing it through movement, whether we're doing it through, um, there are specific, my dear friend Janina Fisher and Paradigm, mm-hmm. who created sensory motor psychotherapy or yep. Peter Levine's somatic experiencing or Jean Jenlin's focusing. I love using focusing. So working with the body and Rather than seeing the body as something that that has betrayed you or something that got weaponized by your abuser, it's about reconnecting to the body and noticing that the body is also a source for pleasure. Mm, and it's a so important for and safety that the breath is can be so grounding and stabilizing so you know it's a matter of kind of doing all that rather than focusing on calories and what you ate last week I don't mm. think that gets clients very far in psychotherapy again what, what and nutritionists can focus on that because sometimes people do need to be educated about food groups and healthy eating and portion size. Okay, but I don't do that as a psychotherapist. I go to the other stuff.
1: Even as you're talking about it, it's, it's so dry. <laughs> and, then, and then you start talking about movement and creativity mm. and art and, and the breath. And it just...
0: I don't know, in my
1: body, my body just relaxes even as you're saying that, you know. So I just want to come back to your caress model. I recently did a little post about that on my Instagram account. So if anyone's interested, it is there. And what I will do, Lisa, is get you to send me, if you've got a link to a... sort of longer version or um, if it's in is it in one of your books actually or?
0: It is, it's it's in two of my books but I'm happy to send you sort of a one page kind of quick you know crystallization of crass that you you feel free to to post.
1: I've got to say I only discovered it when I was researching for this interview and I read it Mm -hmm. and I thought oh my god where has this been for the last 20 years and it's obviously (laughs) been there but I just haven't found it so I'm going to say to our listeners definitely get your hands on this it is very easy to um, access and to implement and in three easy steps. But Mm -hmm. obviously it's not always going to be easy because we know things can be tricky. But so the other thing is you have, for people who maybe can't get to therapy or don't have access to therapy, you do have a couple of books. Would you tell our listeners about them?
0: Sure. Thank you. I'd be happy to. So I actually have three books. The first book is for the therapists out there called Treating Self-Destructive Behaviors and Traumatized Clients. But the book for clients themselves, for just everyday folk, there's a workbook called Letting Go of Self-Destructive Behaviors, a workbook of hope and healing. All of my books you can actually get on Amazon, that's probably the easier way, or you can access them through my website and I guess I'll do a link for this. It's just the Institute.com. Yeah. Um, the workbook does make this very important connection between any self-destructive behavior and a prior either pain narrative or trauma narrative. Um, Totally depathologizes it. There's no shaming. There's no, Mm. I don't believe in, again, as I said, in in the borderline personality diagnosis, so I don't go down that road. But what it does give you, it gives you uh, ways that you can organically and authentically begin to substitute what you've been doing, the cutting, the eating disordered stuff, with other strategies that don't, and this is the key difference, that don't have the endpoint of shame. Yeah. So I understand, and I know, Jody, you do as well, that for clients who are cutting, for clients who are getting high or using alcohol or using food, we understand clinically that in the short term, those behaviors work. Oh, you wouldn't absolutely. keep doing them if they didn't work, right? And they work really, really well until they don't. That's it. And I think the reason why they don't is because the end point is shame. When you hate yourself, it resonates to hurt yourself. That's like a key mantra. When you hate yourself, it resonates to hurt yourself, and shame evokes that feeling of self-hatred. So in the workbook, you're given many other ways that you can, again, self-soothe and comfort yourself, communicate your story, but there's no end point of shame. That is the key difference. And I really think that ultimately, for those of us who are attempting to work with these behaviors and to help clients who want to let go of these behaviors, we have to address the shame. It's such a key, key ingredient. So the workbook gives you very concrete strategies journaling prompts, art prompts, guided imagery, breath work, movement, all kinds of fun stuff, but stuff that really, really works. Um, my most recent book is called Finding Your Ruby Slippers, and that's also written for everybody. And the focus of that book is just a series of positive affirmations, positive thoughts, and then a whole bunch of journaling prompts that you can actually do right in the book itself, or, or you can answer some of the journal prompts in a separate notebook. But the intention is to dramatically increase self-compassion that positive self-talk that we've been talking about today and also to help you access your own inner wisdom Mm. Um, and so that's why the book is called finding your ruby slippers i'm assuming most of your listeners have seen the movie the wizard of oz yeah it came to Yeah, yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, okay (laughs) so if you know in that movie Dorothy spends the entire movie, the entire three hours of that movie, trying to find her way home. And she believes the wizard has the answer. And when she finally, finally gets to the Emerald City, uh, and she Mm -hmm. confronts the wizard, there's that moment, that iconic moment where Toto pulls away the curtain. And there's that little guy, Mm -hmm. right, just pulling levers. There's no great, great, all-powerful Oz. And of course, initially, Dorothy is completely dejected and overwhelmed because she was counting on Oz to get her home. And then Glinda comes down in that beautiful little bubble with her wand. And basically she says, Dorothy, look at your own feet. You've been wearing the ruby slippers all along.
1: Oh, that is so beautiful.
0: That has always stayed with me, Jody, as an mm. incredible metaphor for our own wisdom. I believe no matter what our clients are doing, no matter what self-destructive behaviors they're, ga- they're engaging in, there's a wise part to who they are. And that wise part knows what they need to heal.
2: Yeah,
0: and so I, I always say to my clients, this is not about reinventing you. This is about reclaiming you,
2: mm. reclaiming
0: that wisdom. Um, kind of looking down at your own feet and and recognizing that you've been wearing the ruby slippers all along so um, it's a very empowering uplifting optimistic and and hopeful book and I think that when you've struggled and you've had pain and you've suffered it's it's healing to read something that's positive and and uplifting and, and hopeful
1: Oh, absolutely. Look, I think that is a beautiful place to end. I mean, yeah. you know, it's like coming home to your true self, mm-hmm. realizing your greatness and beautiful and all those wonderful things that already exist inside that have had to go into hiding for whatever reason. Beautiful story. So, would you just repeat your website again for people, so that um, for therapists and for people who are struggling? Sure. It's
0: theferrensinstitute.com. And there's a lot of free resources there. You can access my blogs, my vlogs. There's archives of the radio show that I did. It's a way that you can access my books. So for, for therapists and for clients, there's lots of resources that I, I think can be uh, very helpful. Theferenceinstitute.com. That's oh. really all you need to know.
1: Thank you so much for coming today. I know that our guests are going to be so nourished by everything you've shared. So I'll put everything in the show notes there. And thank you very much for coming today,
0: Lisa. Thank you, Jody. And I, I really want to say thank you for the really wonderful work that you're doing as oh, well. Thank you. You're making a true difference in the world, in that part of the world and all
1: over the world. Oh, thank you. This is episode 14. You can find the show notes at the dot online forward slash soul sessions 14 letting go of self-destructive behaviors.
0: Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind, and soul, get Jody's free 65 page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.